Okay, here we are at the Santa Cruz College. It's a group meeting above Logos Books in Santa Cruz on um, May 1st, 2015. Hey, guys. Oh, yeah. It's too bad it's This is so cool. It's almost is this a weird venue? This yeah. is so underground. Wow, this is yeah. great. Underground and yet on top of the world. Yeah, we're on the... You can look down into the bookstore. I didn't notice I that. I know, this is big. Yeah. It's surprising. So, a really joyous part of ethics and the friend visiting, especially the friend who's not a friend yet, but probably will be um, by the end of it. And I was thinking about this movie that I was exposed to as a very young man, too young to actually be seeing it, but my parents thought I wouldn't remember, uh, but I did. And this movie is called Stripes, with Bill Murray and Harold Ramis. Harold Ramis is, I think, the, the screenwriter. And there's an early scene in Stripes in which Harold Ramis walks into Bill Murray's apartment. Bill Murray's a little down on his luck. He's been fired. Uh, he lost his pizza. His dry cleaning has been ruined. And his living girlfriend has just walked out on him. Um, Harold Ramis walks in without knocking, uh, goes immediately to the refrigerator and tells Bill Murray uh, that he only has one beer left and he's going to drink it. <laughs> Bill Murray says no, of course, lying flat on his back on the floor just thinking about this cloud of depression. Harold Ramis laughs at his saying no and says, we'll split it. And then drinks the entire thing himself in front of Bill Murray. And I was hoping that this is the way that we could welcome Rudy Rucker this evening as the kind of friend who would take liberties, uh, who would go to your fridge, drink your beer, offer to split it with you, and then just drink it in front of you. Um, and I'm reading on that entirely. Uh, this is my first night meeting Rudy. Uh, he's been very sweet so far. I'm very excited uh, to get him to start talking. Uh, I found out that we were friends in this way. Um, he is a, a deep lover of literature. I don't want to do much to preempt his bio. He's going to be talking about his journals today, um, but also somebody who's well-versed in mathematics and computer science, um, but definitely a friend of ours, uh, somebody who could drink our beer, even if it was the last one, even if we said no, even if he offered to split it and didn't. Um, all right, so it's my great pleasure to introduce Rudy Rucker. College. Thanks, Andrew. That, that's actually a very good introduction. I, I am that kind of person. <laughs> uh, and uh, maybe you'll see some examples of that in the material I'm going to read. This, what I'm, this book that I just published is called Journals uh, 1990 to 2014, 25 years, and it's, uh, I've always, I've been a professional writer ever since I was about 30, so almost 40 years, and uh, over the years I got more into keeping journals. It's, having the computer enter my life uh, made, made a big difference, that was, you know, not, not that early on. But around the early around 1980, I mean 1990 was when I started uh, keeping on keeping journals electronically. And uh, the thing is, if you have journals that are on paper, it's hard to do anything with them because you don't want to type them up. And uh, but these were a lot of files that accumulated. And uh, when would I write in the journals? Well, 
I have a little bit about this in the introduction. Maybe I'll, I'll read a page about that. Um, we moved to California in 1986, and I got a day job as a computer science professor. My, my real job being, at least in my mind, being an author. By 1990, I'd switched to keeping my journals in electronic form. It took me a while to fully commit to the process, so the early entries are also drawn from letters, emails, and writing notes. The things I write about include introspection. I turn to my journals when I'm undergoing a personal crisis. As a novelist, it often amuses me to dramatize and exaggerate as if I'm in a state of hopeless despair. The more you kvetch, the better you feel. Once I've said the worst possible things, my real life seems bearable. Philosophizing is another thing that you'll find in here. I'm forever seeking a path to enlightenment. A deep understanding of how the world works is something I long for. And to the extent that I've gotten close to that, I feel like it's really a matter of paying close attention to things that most people overlook. Things like the motion of tree branches in the wind or uh, the expressions on people's faces. It, things that are in your head when you aren't thinking. Uh, journalism. I like to describe what I see going on around me. I follow Jack Kerouac's practice of sketching daily scenes in real time. Like I might sit in a cafe with my laptop and just be describing the people around me. If you stare really hard at them, they sort of they get twitchy. They know they can sense that you're you're drawing off some prana from them, uh, by capturing their soul in your words, and then you keep on doing it. <laughs> I'm particularly likely to work on my journals when I'm on the road or on a trip. And another thing in the journal is my writing notes. Uh, I think a lot about the craft of writing. And now I'm going to take my sweater off. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, when I taught at San Jose State once, I came into the classroom late, and one of the students was in front putting his sweater on and off, imitating me. That's, my students sort of know me for that because I, uh, I'm always adjusting how I feel. <laughs> Anyway, so I worked on these journals a long time, and I did uh, these various things went into there. And uh, I published about between 30 and 40 books over the years. And uh, up until about five years ago, they were with commercial publishers like Tor Books or uh, Princeton University Press, uh, Bantam Books, Ace Books. And uh, about five years ago, uh, things sort of changed it was sort of around the time Borders Books went bankrupt. Uh, the publishers took a big hit. And uh, there aren't any, very many bookstores anymore anyway. And the e-book thing is growing. Anyway, my publisher started feeling that I wasn't making enough money for them, so they cast me adrift. And uh, then I had to decide, do I quit writing or, or not? And I decided to keep on writing. And. Uh, so I figured out how to self-publish. And it, in a way, it's easy. I mean, it's not that easy. I was a professor of computer science, and it took me seven months to figure out how to do it. So it's not that easy. And I'm still learning. There's a lot of gotchas. But 
basically I mastered how to get my books, put them, make them into ebooks, and put them on Kindle, and uh, also you know distribute them for other formats, and also how to make printed books. Uh, and you don't have to pay anything to do this. Amazon has this thing called Create Space, and basically you send them a PDF that looks like a book, and then they list it as if it was a real book, and people buy it as if it was a book. <laughs> I guess maybe it is a book. Okay. So uh, actually the very first bookstore to have this book on their shelves is none other than Logos Books. Uh, this afternoon I uh, wholesaled some of them to Scott Clements, and uh, they're on the shelf down there in the Santa Cruz College uh, book section downstairs at Logos. It's sort of near the Egyptology section <laughs> and, and the UFO section, closer to the UFO section. So, uh, so I thought I'd read some sections of the book and uh, maybe every now and then, uh, if anybody's a question right away, we could hit a question if somebody has something they're yearning to ask me. Otherwise, I'll just read you the first page of it. It sort of gets where I was at at the beginning. Uh, this is March 22nd, 1990. I'm 44, proctoring tests. God, what a futuristic date, 1990. And it's my 44th birthday. I'm proctoring an exam in my C programming class, Proctor. At Swarthmore College, there were boys called Proctors, and it was their job to turn you into student court if they saw you drinking. Proctology. Proctoscopic, dude. Four years ago, I was an unemployed writer turning 40 in Lynchburg, Virginia. That was the day they offered me this job at San Jose State. I'm enjoying teaching this semester. I guess I like teaching after all. Swarthmore is raising their costs to 21K a year for daughter Georgia, which is about the same that San Jose State gives me for teaching half-time. I teach half-time this year because I'm also working as a software designer for Autodesk of Sausalito, California. It's almost supper time, and I've already driven to Sausalito and back 70 miles each way. James Glick is here for two days to talk about the interface for this commercial program we're developing at Autodesk, James Glick's Chaos, the software. Writing Chaos and teaching computer science is all I've done since last June when I finished my novel, The Hollow Earth. The Chaos work has been quite a job, but incredibly rewarding. We've had many amazing discoveries. Latest is a 3D perspective rendering of the Lorentz attractor looking like an alien squid. It's based on three differential equations. I really like wallowing in math, to tell you the truth. Happy as a pig in math. The glittering manic nerd joy at using the logical tools to their ultimate abilities. Yes, the work is rewarding, but I want it to be over. So yeah, it's my birthday, and unlike most birthdays, I'm not drunk. Today's a work day. Yesterday I smoked pot all day, mowed the lawn with our real mower, went to the dentist, and drank a bottle of wine. I've been going to a periodontist recently. I'm going to lose many teeth. Well, one of which flared up and is killing me. I'd let them pull it right now. That happens as you get truly middle-aged, your teeth want to fall out. Nature's way is to put a huge separating abscess under the tooth to eat away the bone so the tooth can fall out on its own. Who mumble needs damn teeth anyway? Okay. Well, that's uh, 44. Uh, 
And uh, I'll skip forward a little. Let's see. What's the, I just marked some various spots in here. What's in here? This was, you'll notice, there were, in these earlier entries, I talk about drinking and getting high pretty often. And when, in 1996, I saw the light and I stopped drinking and getting high. Uh, basically, you know, I felt I wanted to die all the time. So then I thought, this isn't working. So then I changed, but I was anxious that I might not be able to write anymore if I wasn't, you know, ruining my life with drugs and alcohol. But I found I was able to write, after all. I still have a lot of ideas. So um, this is one, though. I have a friend who's a painter, Paul Mavridis, and for a period he was painting on black velvet. He was doing these really odd paintings on black velvet. He was riffing off, you know, like people did paintings of Elvis or The Last Supper on black velvet, but he did things like uh, the Kennedy assassination or the Challenger disaster <laughs> on black velvet. So sort of working against. So I used to go up to his studio and smoke pot and read to him what I've been writing lately. So here's a little bit of a one day with him. May 22nd, 1992. Mavridis High, chore boy. Went over to the apartment of Paul Mavridis and Hal Robin this week. Got very high. I was clipping. When I get high enough, I have this clipping effect that certain levels of thought or perception awareness just disappear like things clipped off a computer graphic screen, either because they don't fit or because their intensity or saturation is too great. That's a good word from computer science, clipping. I told them the story of the hacker and the ants thus far. That was a novel I was writing then. It seemed really interesting and funny as I told it to them. As I talked, I had the idea that the ants should have mites living on them, like an electron microscope picture of a poor patterned bug's back with a mite latched onto a hair and a mite on the mite. I had another good idea, too. Now, what was it? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. When I was talking about the meta-meta chore boy house robot that killed a baby, Mavridis wanted to know how it killed the baby. He was blasted, too, and he thought I was telling a true story. <laughs> it was vacuuming, and it ran over the baby, I said. No, I don't believe that. So I thought of a better answer on the spot. Oh, yeah, it was Thanksgiving, and the family went out for a walk, and they left the robot to keep an eye on the baby. The robot was supposed to put the turkey in the oven, only the robot got mixed up and it put the baby in the oven. With the meat thermometer? Yeah, it stuck the meat thermometer into the baby to get to the body cavity, and the baby died instantly, so there were no warning cries to alert the chore boy. But when the family comes home, the robot is bent over the turkey, crooning a lullaby and trying to put a diaper on it. <laughs> and the horrible truth dawns. <laughs> Here's a, a one in Santa Cruz. February 18, 1994. 4D Knots, the Terrace Court Motel. Sylvia and I are spending a couple of nights in the Terrace Court Motel in Cruz. I'm using this place as the setting for a big scene in Freeware. That's a novel I was writing then. It was about robots who were trying to take control of people's brains. And one of my robots works as a maid at the Terrace Court Motel. That's sort of across from the boardwalk. 
I don't know if you've ever noticed it. I think it's still there. I keep obsessing about an email flame I posted this morning to the math and computer science faculty, wanting to retract it. Thinking about a future company that sells flame retardant, a software agent that goes out over the net and finds all the places your flame got mailed to and uncues it, pulls it back out of the mailbox before the receiver gets around to reading it. Imagine flame retardant in real life. Like you could make people forget the bad things you did. You go ahead and do whatever you like, and people eventually forget it, which is pretty much how the world actually is. The bums at the Santa Cruz liquor store last night. This is down at the end of Front Street. One guy comes out from the alley in back of the store. He looks like Charlie Manson and has a blood thing on his forehead, like the cross that Carvey, Charlie carved on during the trial. Another bum, they always have the full muff of beard and this great twitching urgency about their motions, was buying something to drink when I went into the store. He was paying with pennies, a lot of pennies. I think maybe he and the other guy lived in the store's dumpster. This afternoon, Sylvie and I were checking out the fun center at the Santa Cruz Amusement Park. A ribbon of light pulls you in via a moving pixelization on the ceiling. Fun center. Inside, one machine had a movie of actors talking to me. We need a man to help us, stranger. I got change and put in a dollar, and the machine didn't work. <laughs> the place is kind of a museum of games. Centipede, Cubert, and even an ancient machine that sells black and white postcards of jet planes and race cars. And the mechanical baseball game I played in Louisville, where you push on a button and it swings a metal silver bat beneath the game's glass cover, whacking a ball bearing towards targets. Okay. Hiking with Pierce, June 14, 1995. The theory of turbulence. John Pierce is a friend of mine from who was a professor at Santa Cruz. There's two of my professor friends are here, Michael Beeson and John Pierce. The theory of turbulence says there's a cascade of lesser vortex rings coming off any vortex ring. The only way vortex rings can shed energy is to spawn smaller versions of themselves. Walking with John Pierce on St. Joseph's Hill, we have a vision of cop vortices in the possibility ether and of a cop shedding vortices of bad vibes spawning off his car's rear bumper. So, yeah, Professor Pierce and Professor Rucker went for a walk today, <clears throat> crawling under fences, trespassing, worrying about the cops, still some life to us old boys, boys running around up there in the woods, Calvin and Hobbes. Originally, Pierce and I both got PhDs in mathematical logic. We both retooled for computer science at SJSU, <clears throat> and so did Michael Beeson. Finally, we got, finally, John and I got promoted to full professor this year, professors of mathematics and computer science. A few nights back, I had one of those old academic nightmares. When I was in college and years thereafter, the dream was about a class I'd forgotten I was taking and the big exam I missed. Then, as a professor, the nightmare shifted to being about a class I kept forgetting to show up for to teach. So the other day, I'm having one of these dreams. I keep forgetting to bring the graded homework back to the students, and they're really annoyed and about to complain to the chairman. And then in my dream, I think to myself, well, I have tenure. <laughs> I'm a full professor. It really doesn't matter what these kids think. I'm at the top of the heap. 
When we got back down this, downtown this afternoon, John started laughing, watching me buy a loaf of bread, me grinning in my shades at the boulangerie in Los Gatos. Rudy, you looked so wasted in there, with this big, irrelevant grin. It's always music to my ears, that kind of remark. <laughs> okay, June 9th, 1996. In recovery for real, Big Sur. I've been working at it all spring off and on, and I'd say that I'm finally in recovery for real. I feel like just now I got the final piece of the puzzle. It has to do with the feeling that something like God is everywhere and that this force can help me. I'm talking about a white light, cosmic, overarching, all-as-one, pantheistic kind of God with the added fill-up that this force can hear me and help me. I had my vision on a solitary camping trip in Big Sur. I'll jump right to the vision part now, and after that I'll get to write into writing about the beauties of the hike. The vision happened on my second night of sleeping in my tent in a backcountry Big Sur Redwood Grove. I woke up in the night around 4 a.m. The half moon was high overhead. I put on my glasses and got up and looked around, deciding I should stay up for a little while, as this was such a rare kind of moment, being alone in the moonlight under the redwoods by the stream. I saw some bare hanging dead branches, and I thought, spooky. And I started to be scared, but then I pushed that away by expanding my awareness to have a sense of a pantheistic God all around me and within everything that exists, an attentive God loving me. The whole world is a single living fabric that I'm woven into. Alone in the wilderness, I felt safe, as if I were at home. A simple vision, really. I knew it all along. I walked down and sat by the stream, listening to its noises, its splishes and splashes like musical notes, nearly rhythmic but not quite, chaotic and beautiful. Finally, I was well. Okay. Here's an a, a interesting bit. Uh, Sylvia and I... Sometimes, you know, kids after college, they go and, and take the train around Europe for a week or two. And we finally managed to do that when we were 50. <laughs> but we were having fun doing that. We've been on this trip so long. So this is September 28, 1998, and we were in Vienna. We've been on this trip so long, it's unbelievable. Sometimes it all blends, and I can't remember anymore what city I'm in but always I'm happy to be doing something so different. I'm totally physically exhausted from touring every day for over four weeks now. Greedy. When you're touring, you walk so much more than you usually do. I look forward to sitting on the train for 14 hours tomorrow. I got to see the Bruegel paintings in Vienna four times. Not f fully sure I can write my novel about him. I need to think about the angle some more. I acquired a number of books about him in the museum shop and mailed them back home today. Five kilograms, too heavy to carry. The post office woman was unbelievably rude and unhelpful. I mentioned this to my Vienna friend, Conrad Becker, and he said the Viennese, the Viennese postal workers treat everyone that way, not just the tourists. His theory is that Vienna is far enough east that it shades into having surly state employees along the lines of the Soviet Union. There's a snack stand by the streetcar stop called Wurst und Durst. That means sausage and thirst. Wurst und Durst. 
Sausage and thirst. Beer-drinking bums hang out there, sticking their heads into streetcars to ask for money. <laughs> Sunday afternoon, Sylvie and I went to the wonderful Circus Roncalli. One clown had a Fellini-style pointed hat and a spangled suit with high shoulders. Another clown walked around upside down on a ceiling suspended high in the tent. He was a bouncing ball up there, sweeping and trying to drink from a bottle, but the liquid went the wrong way. We got so confused watching him, you couldn't tell what was holding him up. The curtains in the circus entranceway were velvet, and people were drinking champagne. It was lovely, so full of color and laughter and love. Leaving the circus, we had a strange moment. There was a chill in the air and some low gray clouds with bits of blue showing through. Some of the leaves on the trees were yellow. All of a sudden, it was fall. It had been coming in gradually, but we'd been too busy playing to notice. It had been summer when we left home, but now we'd stayed away so long that it was fall, us off in a distant city. We'd stayed away longer than I realized, and I had a feeling, too, that in the great year of my life, it had just now turned fall. It turned to fall while we were at the circus. Then there was a Y2K rolled around, and I don't know, I guess most of you remember the insane bullshit where they took down the global economy for about $4 billion by talking about the Y2K bug, which didn't actually exist. <laughs> so, we're, like, everything was supposed to stop working, you know, at midnight, unless you, you gave a lot of money to some consultants, you know. <laughs> But I mean, countries like Ecuador and Tunisia that didn't give it, didn't didn't care about it. Their planes didn't fall out of the sky. Nothing happened, you know. So, but we were anxious about it. Sylvia and I went up to San Francisco, and it was very strange. It, it wasn't a time of celebration. They were putting plywood over the windows of all the stores. They were expecting riots, and uh, it was everybody was tense and anxious. And then. Uh, Here's what happened right at the end. So we had dinner with my daughter Isabel and her boyfriend. After dinner, Isabel and Mikey ride off on their bicycles, and Sylvia and I walk around San Francisco. We swing, th swing through Union Square, but nothing's going on there. Only a couple of hundred people in a clearing behind a zillion police barricades listening to some weak-ass world music. <laughs> we ride a bus down Market Street, to as close to the ferry building as we can get and walk the rest of the way. This is where it's at. Thousands of people walking along with us. They're not, on the whole, violent or weird, ju just here to see the show. We stop around First Street, where the crowd starts to get too thick. Hundreds of police, some with riot helmets and batons, some mounted on motorbikes, motorcycles, and horses. They're very insistent about keeping us out of the street and on the sidewalks, a display of force. Their motorcycles are doing little circle maneuvers, savoring their free space. At midnight, the fireworks start by the ferry building's old tower, big fountains of colored balls and paisley-like swirlers, then skyrocket explosions, maybe 10 minutes' worth. Looking down the street towards the ferry building and the bay behind it, we can't see all the fireworks, but we can see a lot of them. A young gay couple next to us is one of the guy's parents. They exchange a little peck at midnight, just like Sylvia and me. 
Green laser lights fan over the crowd now, and the twitching beams sketch images on the building, fully operational. The exultant play of the still-functioning computers. <laughs> Behold, your Lord and Master still liveth. <laughs> Afterwards, we see dozens of people talking on cell phones. That's a new 21st century thing, too. But many things haven't changed. People still wear long pants and thick coats and leather shoes and wool hats. The future hasn't swept this stuff away. We wear warm clothes because we figured out over thousands of years that they're practical and comfortable. We still like fireworks, too, and good food. And here's another sort of historic moment. This was uh, a little after 9-11, September 17, 2001. Actually, I was invited to give a talk at the Santa Cruz Library. I think it was a, a writing group or something. I don't exactly remember. I think it was a writing group, yeah. So uh, I got there early, and I went out to Four Mile Beach, which is one of my favorite places to go. I like to go out to Four Mile Beach and then walk up the beach uh, to the left as far as I can go. Six days now since the unforgettable 9-11. I'm at one of my writing spots, the Java House Cafe in Santa Cruz. That's a Hawaiian restaurant now. Uh, Many's the local I've sketched here for use in E.G. Saucer Wisdom. Today I'm here to give a talk to the Santa Cruz Writers' Roundtable. They meet at 6 p.m. in the library a couple of blocks away. I'm talking on finding your story. We'd already programmed this event before 9-11. Our daughter Georgia, who lives in Greenwich Village now, saw the buildings collapse, each of them, pancaking down floor by floor, pulverizing the 3,000 people inside, Georgia standing in the street. What a terrible thing for your little girl to see. I haven't been feeling much anger about the attack. It's more fear about what comes next. And we're stuck with what looks like the least well-equipped president we've ever had. For a few years, I've been thinking about how the U.S. has been tormenting Iraq, blockading it, bombing them so often that it's not even news anymore. I've been worried that doing that kind of thing for long enough would bring something nasty down on us the cause and effect, the karma. But none of our leaders are seeing it that way. I drove down to Santa Cruz early this afternoon, and I went to Four Mile Beach, my favorite. Out on the east end of the beach, quite a ways from the entrance, there's a tower of stone in the sea with pelicans flying by and even a puffing, puffin nesting in the tower. This is my magic spot, and I knew it would make me feel good to go, go there today. When I get to the spot, I'm immediately in touch with the big aha. I don't have to try to meditate or work to still my thoughts. All I have to do is go there and merge in the perfection of nature's chaos. Today I write a slogan of mine onto the damp sand at the water's edge beside the tower. Eadem mutata resurgo. This is Latin for the same yet changed I re-arise. The mathematician Jacob Bernoulli 1654 to 1705, had that Latin saying inscribed on his tombstone in Basel, Switzerland, along with a picture of the logarithmic spiral. I often invoke this motto when I'm starting a novel. And of course, it fits into the mood of recovering from 9-11. So I wrote it with my finger in the sand, also thinking of my cuttlefish from the UFO under the boy's bed in my novel in progress, the one set in 3003. The cuttlefish gets cut up and burned, but a scrap of him gets away and wriggles into the ground 
at the end of the next long chapter, he'll be back, maybe looking different, and he'll say, Eadim mutata resurgo. And the, war, and the boy will go, what? And the alien will say, that's Latin for, I return, different and the same. And the boy will say, what's Latin? I was happy with this line of thought, but the tragedy was still in the back of my mind, just as it's been all this week. The air was autumnal, tinged with sorrow, bringing a sense of the fragility of things. I walked back down the beach the way I came, looking at the bubbles in the foam winking out like lives. A big patch of bubbles winked out in New York. The wind was blowing the sand, and I thought of Shelley's poem, Ozymandias, about two vast and trunkless legs of stone standing in a desert. These are the remains of a vast statue honoring a now-forgotten king. I thought of all the plans and schemes that I make for my projects, and I realized that in time all will be blown away like dust, erased from the face of the earth, as surely as my body and my name. Even America will blow away. Shelley, nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. While driving from Formal Beach back into Santa Cruz to hit the Java house before my evening talk, I heard a nice song on the radio. It sounded like an old Dylan song, a song I'd never heard before, and the singer and the band were hitting these nice harmonies. I started thinking how the sound of a harmony is our way of showing unity to the ear, our way of centrally representing the oneness of the cosmos, a way of trying to make manifest the divine, immutable reality behind the fleeting appearances of things. And I thought of the Om we say in yoga class, the divine syllable that supposedly brings the world into being. That Om isn't in the past. No, the cosmic Om is bringing the world into being in the present. Here and now, the universe is being engendered around us, all of it at once, all the time. It soothes me to think this way. When I park in front of the Java house, the song is still going on. I turn off the radio. The sound stops in the middle. But yet, it goes on. Eadem mutanta resurgo. In the Java house, I wrote up this journal entry, and that's what I read to the Writers' Roundtable group in Santa Cruz at 6 p.m. I got choked up and cried a tear or two while reading. A good experience, finally, to shed a tear over the disaster. They liked the reading. It was real. Afterwards, a woman said, I didn't know mathematicians cried. <laughs> I was in um, Brussels for, at one point I got a grant, and I was there for a couple of months. And I got very obsessed with quantum mechanics, which sometimes happens to professors trying to understand it, you know. And there, uh, this week I've been thinking, there's this word they use in quantum mechanics, coherence and decoherence. And it's sort of technical. It's not entirely clear what, it, what they mean, not to me anyway. And uh, the way they would use it, sometimes people about, talk about Schrodinger's cat, you know, the cat's in the box, and maybe... It got poisoned, and maybe it didn't, and so it's 50% alive and 50% dead because you don't know. 
And that's coherent. It's not what you'd expect. Coherent is when you're totally messed up. You're 50% alive, you're 50% dead. And then you open the box and the, then the cat becomes decoherent. And it's not, doesn't, can't be both things at once. It has to either be all dead or all alive. So coherent is how you want to be. Uh, psychically, before the waitress asks you what you're going to order, you're in a coherent state. You know, you're like 30% pizza, 20% ravioli, 50% spaghetti. But you, you haven't decided. You don't have to be nailed down. And that's a pleasant state to be in. I don't like it when I meet somebody and their way of making a conversation is to ask me a series of questions, like a questionnaire. Because they're forcing me into a decoherent state. You know, I'm mellow, you know, I'm everything. And then, <laughs> you know, here's where I live, here's where I work, here's where I went to college, you know, blah, blah, blah. The hell with them. So... Anyway, Satori in Paris. This is December 9th, 2002. This week I've been thinking a lot about quantum mechanical coherence in the sense of being in a mixed state and also about entanglement in the sense of your state matching some other system state. If you're coherent, you can be entangled with something that isn't you. It's like I've been trying to imagine how quantum computation would feel from the inside and discovering the process that it's something I do all the time. I'm reaching the point where I can turn off my forever talking inner narration and spread out into a quantum mechanical union with the world. Coherent. Merged. Today I feel like I'd merged, today I felt like I'd merged with the smoke from a smokestack. I was walking in the Latin Quarter, looking at the smoke from a chimney against the sky, not naming it, just seeing it letting its motions move within my mind, and I realized that I myself am no different than a computer graphics screen of a cellular automata computation with the cursor in touch mode and I'm dragging a line across the screen. I'm entangled with the smoke. I am coherent, but my coherence includes the smoke. I have joined the system, merged it into me. It's like the old koan. Question. I see a flag blowing in the wind. Is the flag moving or is the wind moving? Answer, your mind is moving. And finally, I get it. A nice moment of aha, a satori in Paris. So, my son runs a internet service provider in San Francisco called Monkey Brains. So if you're in San, it's a little bit like Cruise.io in Santa Cruz. It's an independent ISP. So you don't have to go to A&T, AT&T, you don't have to go to Verizon, you don't have to go to Comcast. Here you can go to Cruise.io in San Francisco. You can go to monkeybrains.net. And uh, he's been doing it for about 10 years now, I think, 15. And at one point he had this rack of a whole lot of servers was in a former Macy's warehouse in uh, East, East Bay, or no, in uh, Bay, Bayview. And he'd take me there sometimes, and he rented this little closet and about 50 servers there. So I went to spend the afternoon with Rudy Jr., my son's also called Rudy, in San Francisco. He's still running his Monkey Brains Internet Service Provider biz, 
and he's hosting some websites for businesses. Today he showed me the cage that he maintains in a so-called server hotel in a down-at-the-heels down neighborhood. The cage is like one of these wire-walled personal storage areas you might see in the basements of an apartment building. Rudy's monkey brain's cage is full of servers on shelves, also a big router box. The servers are flat computers running a type of Unix. They're called pizza boxes. Rudy pulls a rubber plug out of the back of one of the pizza boxes and tells me to look into the plug. I see a faint red light, grainy with information, the output of an optical fiber line. That's the color of the Internet, says Rudy. You just saw a gigabit per second. Rudy says some of the servers belong to Eric in Hong Kong, a so-called Eric in Hong Kong, who hosts Danish porno merchants on them. Rudy's hosting the host. The Internet is a pyramid scheme, he explains. You buy some, and you sell it to people lower on the pyramid for more money. What I'm doing is to keep moving higher on the pyramid. And in 2004, I retired from teaching from San Jose State. I wanted to use my waning energies just for writing, which is what has always been my first love. And so this is my last lecture. As soon as I woke up, I was planning my final lecture. I'll do this in class today, and in about two weeks, in place of a final exam, my students will demo their semester projects for me, and then I'll be done. At the outdoor coffee bar under my office building, the baristas are playing a Ramones CD, including I Wanted Everything and Rock and Roll High School. Synchronicity everywhere these days. My favorite band has come to sing me goodbye. Joey's dead. This fall I had a premonition exactly here at this coffee bar that I myself would soon be gone from this job. I sit for a while in the sun, drinking tea and listening to the Ramones, penning this note. No rush. The Ramones sing their exquisite, The KKK Took My Baby Away. Life is good. <laughs> what if I got up and started dancing? All around me, students are studying as if, there was, as if there were no music. Leaving my last class, I feel light as a feather. Let's see, have I been talking for an hour? Well, let's do some questions. I've got a question. It's totally oh. geeky, but okay. you said it. Um, so don't particles remain entangled if they go from coherent to decoherent? Or does that end the connection? That's a hard question. I'm not positive. Really? Okay. I think it, they probably do remain entangled, don't they? I don't. I'm really not sure. That's what I would think. But it's tricky. I might have known it for five minutes ten years ago. <laughs> it's, it's probably wrong because it's logical. Yeah. <laughs> Have another question, an easy question. Yeah, in the middle there. When you uh, when you stopped working as a teacher in two thousand four, um, and you kind of just immersed into your writing, did you find that with less structure you wrote less at first, or did you write more? Um, all in all, I write more. The question is whether I wrote more after I retired, and all in all, I did 
simply because I had more time. Uh, one thing about teaching computer science, you can't totally put yourself on autopilot like some old professors. <laughs> the reason being that computer science things change a lot every year. You know, they might, you've learned C, but then you have to start teaching in Java, you know. It's, it's as if you're an English teacher and you came in and they said, well, this semester we're going to be teaching the classes in Hebrew, and instead of using blackboards, we've got these giant rubber rollers that we're going to pull down from the ceiling. And so that's sort of what it's like to teach computer science. So it's very time, just used up a lot of time. It was, retiring in some sense was a little bit difficult because uh, your job is part of your identity. And when you retire, then you've lost part of your identity and you feel a little bit adrift. And uh, the thing was, I had this other job I'd been doing all along, which was writing. So I still had that identity to hold on to. And uh, I'm sort of a self-motivating person. It's, uh, I, I enjoy writing, so it's, it's not exactly hard to make myself write. The thing is, uh, if I don't, sometimes it's too hard to write a novel or a story, but I feel like doing a little writing anyway. And then I'll write, well, that's kind of how these journals emerged, you know. I'll just write notes on whatever I'm thinking about without necessarily planning to publish it. Though I, I always had in the back of my mind had the idea that I might publish these notes. I didn't just publish them the way they were. I actually had to do a lot of revising and hacking to make it, you know, give the thing a shape. And uh, yeah, you're, you're publishing a, a memoir a journal. What do you think the purpose of that is? And how, why did you decide to go with that? Why did I do it? Well, it's like, like you're a cook and you've got some bread there and you say, well, let's make bread pudding, you know. Like, I'm a writer and I've got I got 400,000 words here, and I'm like, hey, this has got to be a book, you know. And then it's also uh, the artistic self-expression. I have, over the years, I've acquired some, a certain number of people who are sort of devoted to my writing, and then I think they would enjoy this. Another thing often, when a writer's dead, if they're sufficiently famous, an academic will publish a book of his journals or her journals. And I thought, well, I'll just do it myself. <laughs> it's, uh, it's part of it also. Another thing that played into why I did this was a few years ago I had, you know, I had a series of, you know, medical incidents where, you know, I thought I might die. You know, I had some heart trouble and then I had a, you know, some other stuff. That's, I won't go into the gory details right now. But, uh, and then I sort of thought, well, I'd like to sort of tidy things up before I leave. You know, I think there's some interesting stuff here, and I think it's sort of beautiful. So I'll make a book out of it. And the thing is, the fact that I started self-publishing about five years ago, the books that I, I self, you can find a lot more about my stuff if you go to rudyrucker.com. That's the, the starting place. And the books that I published myself, uh, there's a page called uh, transrealbooks.com. Uh, or if you just go to rudyrucker.com, you can find all those links. And uh, so it's, it's sort of easy. I wouldn't have bothered going to a publisher with this. It's just, 
it's very tiresome going to publishers uh, if you have a project that's not you know super commercial, and you're going to mail it to them, and it's going to sit there for six months, eight months, and then they'll write you back a letter. Usually, the letters start with the word "alas." <laughs> alas. Although this is, you know, a fine piece of work, you know, we're unable, you know, blah, blah. So it's nice to just say, uh, fuck that shit, you know, <laughs> as you might put it, and, uh, and just do it yourself. And uh, the other, the missing piece is uh, in the good old days, my publishers, I mean, they would pay me money and take the book, the manuscript, and then they'd produce it really well, and then they'd distribute it. And that was great. But the thing is, uh, if I self-publish, nobody pays me, right? But the missing piece of the puzzle there is to do a Kickstarter. So if, you, if you've been writing for a long time, or if in some way you've made yourself notorious or visible, then you might have enough of a fan base that you can get people to uh, contribute. And for this book, I raised, I think it was uh, something like $5,000. Not a lot of money, but... The way the business is, it's about as much as I could have hoped to get from a publisher as a book advance. So I get the money. I own all the rights. The book looks the way I want it to. And the thing with Kickstarter, essentially what you're doing is advanced sales. So because uh, there's levels of rewards. So for a certain amount, they get a paperback. A little more, a little less, they get an e-book. A little more, they get a hardback. So it's, uh, it works. Yeah? So when you switched to uh, keeping your journals online, did you uh, find that you had to have like a, a kind of pre-journal? Like if you're on, you mentioned the camping trip. I mean, do you have to remember all of these experiences and then run home and type it up, or do you? I have a pretty good memory. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's not not really online. They're electronic. You know, it's not like I was posting. Yeah. Uh, well, that's something I do, you know. Then I get home, yeah, and I will, uh, I often will keep notes during the daytime. I almost always carry a, a piece of paper in my pocket and then a pen in my pocket, and I will, sometimes I'll make little notes on things, like you say. But generally, if something impresses me, I'm going to certainly remember it, you know, two or three days later. And... Uh, it's it's a sort of exercise to writing. It's almost like you're doing, you know, you're getting ready. Yeah, right here. What's a phrase or sentence that you've heard recently that struck you um, and that you've remembered? Say that again. Like a phrase or a sentence that you've heard recently that uh, has struck you and that you've remembered as like a really nice or like original use of language. Well, last night we went to see a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta in Mountain View. And all the cast had put on togas, Greek costumes. And in the chorus, the women were chanting, O Poponax, O Poponax, which is a made-up Greek word. And I like that word, O-P-P-O-N-A-X. I have a little touch of Tourette <laughs> where I will get a, a phrase and I will just sort of say it. It's the phrase that pays. It'll be the phrase for the day. A phrase, like an odd phrase that's stuck in my mind. Sometimes spam will have, they don't do this quite as much as they used to. They're doing this more about 10 years ago. They would make an effort to put 
phrases in there that sort of would scan. They, they weren't sounding like they're trying to sell you something. They were just, there would be some other crap in the email that somehow was going to get you. But, and there was one I got where the subject line was, Westinghouse Yam in Alleyway. <laughs> that's, that's good poetry, you know. And so then, at that time, I was working on my novel, uh, I guess it was, I guess it was, I think it was post-singular. There was a, I wrote a novel called Post-Singular that was one of my later cyberpunk books. And that's, uh, you can actually get that for free as a Creative Commons book, Post-Singular. It was, uh, and one of the chapters then I worked in the phrase Westinghouse yam and alleyway. I don't remember exactly how I worked it in, but, (laughs) so I don't know. Yeah? Yeah. I got like a triparter. I, I hate it when people ask these questions. So just ask one. Um, so we're trying to get a collective writing project off the ground. Yes. And a lot of the students are in need of writing advice. Uh-huh. And I know you've had no trouble getting pen to paper over yeah. the years. So I wonder if you have anything to say. Um, I also saw the promotional video you did for this book, The Journal. Yes. And you mentioned Kafka's journals. Yes. Uh, which have a special place in my heart. I read these journals uh, because I get obsessed with uh, the nervous fear and the frailties and all the self-defeating lines. Um, I wonder if you saw any of that going back through your past. And I guess the larger question, and it's the last one, uh, when you were revising this book and revising all of this writing that you had done over the years, did you encounter yourself as a stranger in the pages from time to time? Well, first of all, writing advice. I did actually, I, now and then I've taught writers workshops and Whatever I've been able to formulate, I wrote a, some notes. It's not as long as a book, but you can find it online. It's called A Writer's Toolkit. And if you go to rudyrucker.com slash writing, you'll find A Writer's Toolkit there. And sometimes people have said that there was some stuff in there that was useful to them. Uh, regarding the thing of putting pen to paper or finger to keyboard, I do advise keeping something like a journal in the sense if there's some piece of fiction or article, he was nagging you all to write a term paper and suppose you can't get started, uh, what you could do is have a separate document that is about writing the term paper. And there it's easy to write. This is some dumb shit. I don't want to do this. Or I have no ideas whatsoever. I've never had an idea in my whole life. You know, <laughs> I hate writing. I hate everyone. And that's good. See, I do a lot of that in my journals. <laughs> I don't know how I ever managed to write a book in my life. I've been faking it. I will never write a book again. You know, just say the worst, most horrible things. And that cheers you up. And, you know, you can have fun getting eloquent about it. So that's a way to be writing without writing anything useful. Because one of the tricks of being a writer is finding ways to avoid writing which aren't too self-destructive. <laughs> I mean, so uh, it's better to be writing notes about your writing than, you know, shooting up or something. <laughs> so your second question I've forgotten. That's the trouble with three-part questions. <laughs> Oh, Kafka's Diaries. Yeah, I love Kafka's Diaries. Uh, There's two books that inspired me a little bit, and as you know, I mentioned that. Uh, There's Kafka's Diaries and Andy Warhol's Diaries. 
and very different works, but Andy Warhol said it goes on for so long, and there's something of that in this book. And Kafka's in, yeah, the, the frailty. It's just, Kafka, he's a funny guy. He's, in a way, he did have a sense of humor. There's always, you always hear this story that he was reading the Metamorphosis to his friend Max Brode, and he was laughing so hard that he fell out of his chair, you know. And we tend to think of Kafka as being, you know, kind of uptight, you know, but I don't think he was exactly uptight. <laughs> oh, he was Kafka-esque. <laughs> that's, that's the way to live, where you just you don't have to explain who you are, you know. <laughs> it's just your name is a, the epitome of what you are. Do you ever encounter yourself as a stranger? Do I ever encounter myself as a stranger? Uh, not really. It's a... I'm with myself a lot. It's <laughs> we spent a lot of quality time together. So pretty much everything in here that I read seemed, yeah, I can totally remember feeling that way. And uh, I don't know. You know how it is. Sometimes you can get this. There's this. There's this thing of uh, what is it? Deja vu. The feeling that you've already seen it, or presque vu. There's the three vus. The presque vu is almost seen it, the thing that something's just escaping you. And then jamais vu is when suddenly you look at the world and suddenly you look at it like you're an alien, you know, from, from you know, Galaxy Z. And just suddenly, what is this, you know? Which is, that's a very good attitude to have if you want to write science fiction. Because if you, we take so many things for granted, and if you can just get a little bit of distance on them, just this... It is sort of odd what we're doing. You know, we're made of meat. We're walking around. I mean, we beat these two flagellae that we can walk on somehow. It's, it's strange. And I can't walk up there, but I can walk down here. Why is that? You know? And this, this stuff you're breathing, it's a strange world. Yeah, in the back row. There are these two sides, yeah, that I liked mathematics a lot, and I did always like writing. There aren't a huge number of people that do both those things. Uh, I like writing. To me, it's a craft. It's something I've gotten better at over the years, and I feel like I enjoy it. I take an almost sensual joy in, in writing and getting the right, thinking of the right word and then arranging the words in, in well-turned phrases and getting a nice rhythm in the sentence so it sounds good. And uh, making a story out of it. I think, I have a feeling there's some of you probably would like to leave now. Because, uh, <laughs> but... I'm just getting started. Okay. <laughs> if somebody wants to leave, feel free to take off. I'll, I'll open the window and let a little air in here too, maybe. Mass and writing. Well, I use both halves of my brain. <laughs> it's, I mean, I don't know why I do it. I don't know why I can do it. It's a gift. I happen to be that way. You seem really creative and playful, and I'm wondering if, if writing is a place where you can sort of um, exercise that, that. Well, writing is playful, yeah. Is it? It's, well, I mean, if 
Sometimes I'll write something that makes me laugh, you know. Like, uh, just today I wrote something that made me laugh, and then I was happy, and then I stopped right there. Yeah? Could you talk a little bit about the trans-real Yeah, trans-realism is a word that I made up in, uh, I guess this would have been around 1970. Oh, I don't know, around 1980, 1982. Um, when I started out, there was a school of writing called cyberpunk. And uh, there were about four of us that were known as cyberpunk writers. And there's me and Bruce Sterling and William Gibson. And to some extent, Lou Shiner. And, of course, John Shirley. And... Um, and what we were writing right there, there was this aspect of being, it was at that point science fiction, this was in the late 70s, had become sort of like arena rock, sort of bloated, you know, a little like David Bowie. That's <laughs> we were playing it when I got in here. <laughs> they did play a couple of his good songs, though. Um, or like, you know, less good bands, just <laughs> bombast. And then, there was this thing of wanting to go back to a more leaner kind of science fiction and have the characters be, uh, you know, bitter punks instead of being generals in the Space Navy. And, and that was sort of cyberpunk. And then, though, I, I didn't want to just keep doing that because the easiest thing to do is to write about yourself and your people, at least for me. And that's a sort of the beatnik thing of where they would write like On the Road by Jack Kerouac, you know, it's about him hanging around with his friends, okay? And uh, I thought, well, I'd like to do science fiction like that. And then you might say, well, but I'm not living in a rocket and all that, so how do I get the science fiction in there? And that's the trans. You know, I basically, I don't often put rockets in my book. Usually it's people on Earth and then something weird starts happening to them. And so then, so I could write a realistic novel about people I know and then, uh, and myself, but then add something, like a UFO shows up, or there's a hole in reality, or there's, you know, hollow, some, hollow it turns out the earth is hollow. And uh, so that's transrealism. So that's, that's something that I've done. That stood me pretty good stead. There's sort of a transreal novel I wrote a few years ago. It's set in Santa Cruz. I was imagining sort of what it would be like to to live here. I come down to Santa Cruz every couple of weeks. I like it here a lot. We live in Los Gatos, but we do like to visit Santa Cruz. <laughs> it's so quaint here. <laughs> Funky. And, uh, no, I like it here a lot. I feel, in many ways, more affinity to Santa Cruz than I do to Los Gatos. But, um, so Jim and the Flims is sort of a, it's a way of taking a place that I've been, that I've experienced, and then, you know, throwing in the science fiction. So that's transrealism. I recently published a book called Transreal Trilogy that includes three of my transreal novels. So if you're really curious about transrealism, you could get hold of that. Uh, I can assure you that 
nobody, ins no music critic, inside or outside of Rolling Stone, ever got that much out of meaning out of a Bob Dylan song. They've, you know, you know, put everything in there but the kitchen sink. But I think you got you got the most out of a Bob Dylan song that I've ever heard. But anyway, um, my serious question is: uh, you describe this all-pervasive, pantheistic, white light type right. of conception of God, uh -huh. and then you describe it in a more scientific jargon: a quantum mechanical unity with with nature, with the world. Yeah. Do you feel that there's a distinction to be made between? those two experiences, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, could both be ascribed, as, uh, ascribed to as quantum mechanical, or are you reserving quantum mechanical for a different kind of maybe even non-religious, technical sense experience? Okay. So the question is, uh, does the, the white light mystical Cosmos God, is that reducible to a sort of science God? Mm. And uh, I think if we're talking about the white light mystical cosmos merged into the one God, it's best to just take that as it is. There's no real need to make up a scientific explanation for it. Because any science we have is probably wrong. You know, we've only been doing modern science for about 100 years. So how likely is it that we've reached a final theory? I mean, we have theories that work well enough, but that's, it's just, they're bedtime stories we tell ourselves. And the thing that you can feel if you let yourself go and, you know, just pay attention to reality and feel at one with things, I think that's something that is pretty much accessible to anyone, and it's within your innermost self. And that's, that's realer than any scientific theory that I can barely understand. But, uh, so, I mean, people are always happy when it looks like scientists are giving us permission to believe in God. <laughs> and there, there used to be a, a lot of popular science books like that. There was like the Tao of Physics is perhaps the most famous one. And those are good books. They're interesting. But, uh, I'm also content just with feeling like uh, there is more to the universe than meets the eye. You know, there's something big that we can feel at times if we let ourselves. We can feel like we're part of it. And that's a good feeling. And uh, that's probably as much as we'll ever know about it. So if I understand you right, put it in terms of where you go, I guess, to the beach where you really feel like you're connected mm -hmm. every time you go. When you have that experience there, is it qualitatively, uh, I'm sorry, quantitatively different than an experience you would have apart from, quote-unquote, nature uh, in a quantum mechanical sense? Um, well, I mean, if I wanted to, I could say, well, maybe when I get into this certain kind of state, it is a quantum mechanical process in my brain. There is, I mean, maybe, my friend Nick Herbert is a, physicist and he's also sort of a well he's a connoisseur of altered states we might say and uh, he lives in Boulder Creek that's if you can't make it in Santa Cruz then you go to Boulder Creek you know if people are too straight in Santa Cruz and uh, 
at least that's what Boulder Creek used to be like. Now they're becoming a little more of a bedroom community. And, uh, but he has this theory that he wrote a very, very interesting essay about it. Uh, and he gets into this thing that the collapse of the wave function is that's similar to your psychic states. If you're in your merged into the universe mode, then you're in the uncollapsed wave function mode. And then when you're scurrying and looking at your watch and going to make an appointment, then you've collapsed your wave function and you're a bunch of discrete states in your head. So, I mean, you can work out a theory like that, and it's, it's fun to think about those things. So, maybe that's enough for tonight, and thanks for turning up. I'm left out. <laughs> for instance, I, I've heard, with respect to Maxwell's equations, if you understand them in the original notation, the way Maxwell put it out, versus like Hebeside and those guys did to them, you're going to come to a different understanding of the universe and fields than what is normally thought of. Perhaps those sort of things are the things that are preventing breakthroughs. You so you think the math teachers are watering things down and I taking think, out the good parts? Well, I think they perhaps don't even know that they're doing it. We don't even know that we're doing it. Well, because they haven't, <laughs> they haven't studied that older stuff. I sort of know what you're saying. There is something, when you look, if you get into the history of mathematics, which is something that's always interested me, it's, it's fascinating to go back and look at the way the, the first people discovering something thought about it. Because there is something that happens that as we get good at doing something in math, it becomes maybe too glib, too much a matter of formalism, a game with symbols. But... Uh, if you study, like, the history of Greek mathematics, uh, one of the good parts of mathematics, two of the good parts that might be left out, but which I'm always advocating, are infinity and the fourth dimension. So those are two really fun areas in mathematics. And I wrote a book about each of those. <laughs> but then uh, there weren't any more good parts to write about, so I switched to science fiction. <laughs> But let's thanks for coming out guys. This is a very pleasant talk.